Chokma, everyone. Chokma Shki. Um, let me add my voice to the voices of the organizers in uh, mythology, the Tongva and the Tatabian peoples, the first peoples of this land. Thank the organizers for, for uh, organizing this symposium in honor of Patrick. I'm really honored to be here. Um, I met Patrick a number of years ago through the Native American and Indigenous Studies Association. Um, in one of the very early meetings, when it was in, still in formation, this is a relatively new association. Um, I, I was one of a small group of Latin Americanists, I work in Latin America, um, who were working to stake out a place for indigenous Latin America in the newly founded association and in dialogues about race and settler colonialism. Um, most people in the association supported that idea, but didn't really engage around it, right? Didn't really want to necessarily talk to Latin Americans. Um, <laughs> And um, Patrick did. You know, he, um, in his characteristically intellectually generous way, really wanted to engage and think comparatively and look at what's happening in Latin America in a frame of settler colonialism. So as a Chickasaw, myself, a citizen of a tribal nation based in the US, um, but who's worked much of my professional life in Latin America, um, I have this kind of long-standing um, you know, issue, trouble with what I saw as an artificial divide in the thinking about indigenous people in Latin America and in North America. Um, in particular, I think um, in recent years I've been concerned with what I view as kind of a dual, uh, an unfortunate dual theoretical gap that corresponds, you know, in really general terms to that divide, right? That in uh, theorizations of the settler state, largely elaborated in the North, have rarely grappled fully enough with neoliberal capitalism. And theories of neoliberal, the neoliberal state, which are a primary focus of theorization in the South, um, have failed to recognize the significance of settler logics that structure the conditions of state formation, including in its current neoliberal iteration. Patrick had something to do with this. Um, his elaboration of the concept of settler colonialism was premised on the argument about the land-labor divide. Um, he outlined this you know, in his early work in the 90s and carried it through, maintained it in more recent work like the 2016 Traces of History, in which he discussed, quote, historically produced differences between a history of bodily exploitation and one of territorial exploitation, end quote. So one of the reasons Latin America has thought to be characterized by colonialism of the non-settler variety is the perception that while colonial processes in the Anglophone North focused on land dispossession, and the correlated elimination of the native, um, that in Hispanophone South, colony was focused on resource extraction and the correlated marshalling and control of indigenous labor. Patrick, of course, wasn't theorizing about Latin America in general, although in this book he, of course, theorizes Brazil, but I would argue Brazil is um, particularly exceptional in the context of Latin, Ameri of Latin American states. It's, it has a different colonial trajectory in many ways. So. Um, Anyway, I, I, I insist much of colonialism in Latin America has in fact been characterized um, by both of these things for native peoples and in fact is characterized by settler colonialism. In other words, that it's characterized by both indigenous land dispossession um, and by various regimes of labor extraction that um, were applied to indigenous people who essentially, so essentially in places like Mexico and Central America, those labor regimes from encomienda through repartimiento, hacienda, later pionaje, different systems of labor organization, which went right up through the mid 20th century, um, were the very mechanism that dispossessed people of their lands, forcing them to labor in extractive undertakings on the very land that had been taken from them. 
So, in short, the binary logic of the land-labor divide is heavily problematized by trying to apply it to a Latin American context. And Patrick was really interested in this, right? And so, um, you know, while some people would take that as evidence as evidence of the fact that Latin America is not, in fact, settler, um, the unavoidable fact is that you know the central precept of settler colonialism that you know the colonizers came to stay, right? That invasion is a structure, not an event, are both spot on with regard to Latin America. Um, so unlike metropolitan administrator or indirect colonialism um, in Latin America, white Europeans came to stay. And in fact, much of the racialization and status of indigenous peoples during colony prior to independence was formulated precisely around the tension between settlers and the crown. So the teolo teleological argument that if colonialism involved labor extraction, it is not then by definition settler, or you know, indigenous labor extraction, um, doesn't explain how labor extraction conjuncts with the staying settlers' dispossession of indigenous people and the undeniable logics of elimination at work in much of the region, and increasingly so over time. So, importantly, the distinction between colonialism based on land and based on labor that Wolf raised um, to signal, he, he raised them to signal um, a distinction that's more profound, right? That the underlying logics Structuring societies based on different types of colonialism gave rise to distinct social relations, forms of oppression, and affective understandings and subjectivities. Um, the racial and gender tropes that emerged in support of those projects then should have been different, one would think, in Latin America, and are often presumed to be when people compare Latin America with, say, the United States. Um, yet, when looking at the Americas, I would argue instead that what we see is a remarkable similarity in the racialization of indigenous peoples, of savage, um, or at least uncivilized and eventually unfit for life um, and therefore inevitably disappearing along with gender tropes of indigenous women as subordinate and inherently subject to settler violation. How those tropes have developed and been deployed over distinct histories and landscapes, of course, is not uniform, but they were nevertheless directed to similar aims of native elimination through physical or assimilationist violences and to the ongoing control of what Veracini has called remnant populations. Patrick enthusiastically engaged my ideas on all this, readily offering to be a discussant on a panel on settler colonialism in Abbey Ayala, which is a, a word, an indigenous word for the Americas. Over the course of numerous kind of phone conversations and emails, apparently a lot of us were in dialogue with him um, over uh, different things in this way, he challenged my thinking and dialogically shaped my analysis. We didn't agree on everything. For me, his formulation, which he reiterated in Traces of History, in which the Lockean idea that, quote, private property accrued from the admixture of land and labor in a formula that was color-coded on colonial ground, the application of black people's labor to red people's land producing the white man's property um, felt overgeneralized to me. Of course, he was you know, talking about uh, large structures, but I insisted was troubled by the Latin American case where, in fact, Red people's labor was applied to red, in many cases was applied to red people's land, leaving indigenous peoples subject to both territorial dispossession and bodily exploitation. Um, however, our thinking was more closely aligned on other matters, particularly the fundamental interrelationship of settler coloni colonialism to capitalism, um, something that many other settler colonial theorists are, uh, uh, arguably have focused on far less. So um, in my ongoing work, I've been concerned with understanding 
how settler logics structure the frames of reference that continue to define colonial exploitation in, in Latin American countries. It's, and, and it's crucial to understand the current moment and its implications for indigenous people. European settler colonialism was the catalyst, of course, of capitalist expansion and continues to structure life under capitalism as it moves through different phases. Capitalism's current iteration, neoliberalism, continues to be shaped by the settler colonial imperative of dispossession, extraction, elimination, justified by racial law and gender, racialized and gendered logics, while that while shifting, continue to emerge from that imperative. I've approached these topics through the experience of indigenous women migrants from Mexico and Central America to the US as they cross divides and move through settler spaces. Flori Carmen, who I met in an immigration detention facility in Central Texas in 2013, had been in the United States for 14 years when she was detained. She'd come to the US after many others in her southern Mexico town had departed as their local subsistence economy shriveled under the changes wrought by the North American Free Trade Agreement implemented in 1994. It had given rise to the opposite, forceful opposition of the Zapatista uprising, but in spite of that undermined subsistence and small scale economies by imposing a neoliberal market logic on what were fundamentally unequal economies in terms of production and distribution. Small farmers could not compete and had, and had lost the farm subsidies and basic social services the former corporatist state had provided them. This was the moment of globalization, beyond this end of history in which ostensibly free markets marched across the globe, accompanied ostensibly by rights regimes and democracy. Neoliberalism requires a certain kind of governance in which states shrink their, role, shrink their roles or hide them as the case may be. There has to be a certain level of stability or assumed equality before the law so that states can devolve responsibility for mediating social inequality to civil society. Very different from the welfare state, the authoritarian state, or the corporate state, which requires significant state investment. They let, all they, they let us all sort it out through legal struggles over rights, etc. Naturally, this means racial and gender tropes shift as well. And in Mexico and much of Central America, very overtly as constitutions were reformed to facilitate free market capitalism, denationalizing resources, opening economies to foreign capital, even trade tariffs, etc. In those very same set of constitutional changes, states reformed their constitutions racially to recognize indigenous people as existent for the first time and they had never been recognized constitutionally. Um, and it went in, path, in the past, of course, they had been racialized as part of the past in Mexico, very, very explicitly in racial terms, in terms of mestizaje, right? Um, and, and, it, and at the same time that they were recognized, they were extended some level of collective rights. This is a moment Charles Hale is critically referred to as neoliberal multiculturalism, the moment that had arguably been underway in the United States since the early 1970s. More than a decade after Flora Kaiman left her home in southern Mexico, Nadania departed her home in Honduras's northern coast. She had witnessed a murder on a bus carried out by local gangs linked to drug cartels who she referred to simply as, quote, the men who run the town. Shortly thereafter, her small store at the front of her home was fired upon. She fled the next day, certain she would be killed if she stayed. Leaving Honduras did not free her from danger as she was held for ransom by cartel gangs in northern Mexico and later detained for over a year in immigration detention in the United States. The neoliberal multicultural moment of Flory Carmen's story, even as it showed limitations to its promise, quickly faded into obscurity in Mexico and Central America, where the deregulation of the end of corporatism and the unleashing of free market logics in the absence of solid legal and political systems led quickly to the expansion of mass scale illegal markets. 
drug, gun, and human trafficking expanded as cartels grew in Mexico and Central America, feeding on widespread corruption of the government and military, and the deregulated money flows and reserve army of impoverished generated by neoliberalism. Increasingly authoritarian and militarized governance became the norm in this new national security era. The denationalization of resources and invitation of foreign capital fostered mega development projects ranging from extraction to tourism, disproportionately affect, affecting black and indigenous communities seeking autonomy and territorial control through legal struggles. Dissent was increasingly criminalized, and there was a rise in paramilitary violence to quash the resistance, usually linked to both the government and cartel powers controlling the areas. So a veritable web of neoliberal illegality with states fully enmeshed have generated new forms of dispossession and exploitation, as well as swelling violence rates, making Honduras the murder capital of the world, while Guatemala holds the record at the moment for feminicide. The rights struggles and indigenous autonomy claims of neoliberal multiculturalism waned in the face of obscene levels of bloodshed and massive impunity. This is what I've characterized as neoliberal multicriminalism. Hilaria left her home in San Marcos, Guatemala, with her young son fleeing domestic violence. She entered the U.S. and Texas, part of a wave of refugee families that flowed into the country in the summer and fall of 2015, striking xenophobic terror in a context already predicated on racialized understandings of good and bad immigrants. Like others, they were cast into, into one of the prison-like facilities designed to incarcerate women and children, and there they remained for months. Ilaria's asylum claim was denied, but a new case was opened on behalf of her son. While Ilaria participated in hunger strikes, when Ilaria participated in hunger strikes organized by women in the facilities to protest lack of health care, deplorable conditions, sexual harassment, and unconscionably long incarceration, the private prison corporations first retaliated, but eventually the Department of Homeland Security and ICE did a mass release to free themselves of the protesters. Ilaria and Ilan moved to an immigrant shelter in Austin, Texas. She struggled to manage the huge monitoring chain shackled to her ankle and sought work to sustain herself as she nervously awaited the outcome of Ilan's case. Less than a year later, asylum was denied, and she was informed that they were now deportable. Terrified and unwilling to return to Guatemala, Ilaria sought help. The following month, she went into sanctuary in a nearby church. She and Ilan would spend the next year inside the church as a political battle was waged by immigration advocates and faith-based activists to gain deferred action for the two. In a short-lived victory in October of 2016, Ilaria and Ilan were granted deferred action and left the church poised to start a new life after more than two years in confinement. Two weeks later, Donald Trump was elected. As Ilaria's experience highlights, white supremacist logics were already circulating as policy long before Trump's election in the heart of neoliberal multiculturalism. The racialization of brown bodies as criminal and thus excludable gave rise to the most massive detention and deportation numbers this country has ever seen and were exerted with particular patriarchal force on women and children. Indeed, the sanctuary movement that seemed to spring out of nowhere following the threat to DACA and immigrants in general under Trump was in fact already underway in response to Obama's policies. Historian David Chang, in a particularly eloquent Facebook post, drew parallels between immigrants and indigenous dispossession. Quote, we watched the American settler state under Trump reaching a moment of brutal clarity as it sweeps away liberal fictions of a nation of immigrants, fictions that are torn up and discarded like so many TVs at Standing Rock. A settler colonial nation founded on dispossession is not a nation of immigrants. Where Chang was going with this was to suggest that immigration policy has always been a brutal a process meant to engineer a particular kind of settler nation on native land. 
Chain continues. Slave trade, Chinese exclusion, Bracero program, mass deportation. These two are immigration policy. So the brutalization of the immigrant, of the migrant, is structurally inseparable from the dispossession of the native, end quote. So it's also clear from the examples Chen gives, all of which responded to changing labor extraction needs, that it is also fundamentally inseparable from capitalism. Indigenous women migrants, unfortunately, bear the brunt of racialization as both indigenous and migrant. Let's return to Flora Carmen, for example, who was picked up due to racial profiling after 14 years in the U.S. to be cast eventually into the harshly gnashing jaws of the U.S.'s detention and deportation beast and spit out later into a homeland now racked by the logical evolution of free markets unleashed in the absence of rule of law. As Patrick, along with David Lloyd, uh, argued in a recent article, the ongoing history of settler colonialism forms a crucial terrain through which to understand the formations and practices of the neoliberal state that has emerged to regulate and promote a new regime of accumulation. Today in Trump's America, we see potential moves away from both neoliberalism and any semblance of rule of law. We also see Euro-Americans Euro expressing the need to reassert their settler right to possess this land and reap profits of economic exploitation in this country rather than being subject to it. This will undoubtedly entail new shifting forms of racialization and gendering, retooled but deployed anew to serve the latest iteration of capitalist settler state power. I wish Patrick were here to talk about it.